Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Lee Aaron, best known as an iconic 80s Canadian rock star and uh, dubbed also as Canada's metal queen. So stick around for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. I have to ask you about the name thing, first of all, because obviously you're known as Lee Aaron, but some people, maybe not everybody knows that's a stage name for you, right? Your name is Karen. It is. It is. Um, I'll tell you how I got that stage name, but when it became apparent it was going to become a stage name, I really didn't fight it too much because yeah. I was. it provides, you know, a fair amount of anonymity and privacy for you as a person you know and so so that was fine but I joined a band when I was I was 15 years old I was in a musical production in high school and a bass player from a local band who was in grade 12 at the time uh, saw me because his brother was doing staging and set deck for that product our our Mm. high school in Brampton was quite well known for their musicals and uh, he saw me sing and he was and he was just like whoa I think that's the singer for our rock band. And so he came backstage and invited me to come and audition for his band. And the band was comprised of, in the end, myself and the bass player from our high school, and then a drummer and guitar player from the Bramley Secondary, which was like the neighboring high school. Mm. And in the processes of finding a name, we settled on Lee Aaron, um, which was goofy. You know, we just threw a bunch of, pop culture references in a hat okay like lee jeans aaron spelling the (laughs) mid to late 70s right we were just these 70s kids right and um we decided we wanted a name like max webster or jethro tall like it was like a name yeah and you know aaron lee lee aaron it became lee aaron we pulled these names out of a hat and we settled on lee aaron and then our first year touring when i after i turned um, 18, people just thought, well, there's that Lee Aaron girl. They just yeah. thought I was Lee Aaron. So people started calling me Lee. Right. And, um, you know, initially the band didn't like it too much, but it it ended up working out well for me here, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, 40 years later. You know, I look at Lee Aaron kind of like an Alice Cooper kind of right. thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a persona. Um, not that yeah. it's completely different from myself. Obviously, Alice Cooper, it's part of who he is. Yeah. It's it's an identity that lives within him. And it, likewise, Lee Aaron, you know, yeah. it's um, she's my rock chick. When I met my first manager, I was literally 17 years old. Yes. I, it was the summer between being 17 and turning 18. I knew nothing about the industry, yeah. nothing at all. I just knew, you know, I had stars in my eyes. I was like, I'm going to be a rock star, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, I had no clue how you make a record or how you even go about putting that together. And um, my first manager put me together with uh, Frank. He just said, write, write Lee a song. And <laughs> he wrote this cute little number called I Like My Rock Hard, obviously. There's yeah. the, the double entendre. Yes, Frank, Frank <laughs> Soda and the Imps was known for that. Throughout all my early schooling years, I got involved in any musical I could get involved okay. with yeah. within my school community. And then in high school, 
Our high school was quite well known for their musicals. <clears throat> in fact, we competed regionally in a few things with musicals. And um, also, I, yeah, I learned to read music and play saxophone. I was in the concert band and the jazz band, and I also nice. took some piano lessons. Yeah. So I didn't, I don't have like a grade 12 Royal Conservatory yeah. or anything like that, but I took a few, yeah. um, a few years of piano lessons, enough to be able to read music and yeah. form chords and write songs. And yeah. That's, uh, yeah. When I look at your sort of timeline and your history, I mean, you chose a, a fairly difficult road that most people wouldn't have chosen. Yeah. Like when I started as a woman playing hard rock music, uh, early on, there was nobody in Canada doing it. Hmm. Like, I mean, nobody. There were, you know, there was what, girls' school in England, yeah. and there was the runaways in the States. You know, I really felt treated like an anomaly yeah. <laughs> here yeah. in Canada. And so there were a couple things that were instrumental, I think, in making that leap. Number one was having an original album. Yeah. And uh, also, you know, writing my own songs was always important to me. So even when I was a fledgling writer in the very beginning, I was co-writing with some of the guys on my first record, yeah. some of the much more experienced musicians. So producing original material. And then um, again, like we were fighting an uphill battle to be taken seriously, to be played on the radio. And he said, let's take you to Europe. And hmm. I felt much more... Um, respected and just treated like a rock artist who happened to be a woman rather than right. a woman playing hard rock. So Under Your Spell came out in 82, right? Yep. And then you did a video and, and I mean, the video to be frank is pretty provocative, right? Yeah. It's a very you know, female provocative kind of a video. I don't really want to go into a great deal of detail around that period of my career because yeah. some of it wasn't pleasant yeah. i mean my first manager had some great ideas and then he had some that were you know probably very timely for the era that we were in and the culture the hard rock culture the hard rock culture was very um sexist yeah i mean it, it just was, was. no doubt yeah you know, it was sure. like so i i felt um the push from many forces when my career was in its infancy yeah. to be marketed as a sex kitten. Yeah. Um, you got to remember I was 19 years old. Yeah. I was a really young girl yeah. when I started and made that first record. And I didn't really understand that there was another way to do this, hmm. that there was that I, I didn't really understand that I could set boundaries and that I could stand up for myself. So a lot of that early marketing is quite provocative and in your face. And I think about three, by certainly by the mid 1980s, like by my third album in 85, I had stepped away from that and mm -hmm. set some boundaries and said, this is, this is not what I'm going to do anymore yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's not comfortable for me. But when I was young, I was quite naive. And I, I didn't really understand there was a different way to do things. I thought yeah. these people surrounding me were um, much more um, educated and understood the industry better than me. And if they're telling me that this, these are, this, these are the clothes that I need to wear to get noticed, I guess I'm supposed to wear them. Yeah. Well, that's if these are the photographs I'm supposed to take to be able to be booked in clubs because otherwise I'm there. No one will be, I was 
The impression I was given is that you need a hook. You need something for people. It's not good enough just to be good, that you need something else going on um, to be be noticed. And uh, those were some awkward years for me, for sure. I'm not blaming any one person in particular. And I'm, this is not victim talk at all. Like I don't consider myself a victim. I, I survived those awkward early years, you know, and I'm not pointing a finger at any one person in particular, you know, it, and it was, a lot of it was just part of the culture back then as well. I mean, that's when Duran Duran, you know, came out with girls on film and it was literally a bunch of half naked women stumbling around on the stage with them. And it was was, that video, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of the culture was uh, women were kind of marketed as trophy it was part of the culture. So, yeah. And so looking back, I go, whew, yeah. I survived. In <laughs> fact, the song Metal Queen itself was supposed to be a pushback. It was about against that, yeah. um, you know, uh, objectified and marginalized marketing. Yeah. You know, it was supposed to be about, you know, no, no, women can be matriarchs and can be the boss lady yeah. and should be on, you, you know, uh, could be in that position even in the field of hard rock was, yeah. was kind of what the message message behind that was supposed to be. Yeah. So. And then you got the video that was obviously a fairly expensive video. There's lots of stuff in there with the costumes and you got the snake going through there and stuff. Well, not as expensive as you might think, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, um, I guess expensive for the time we had discussed creating a, some imagery around that song that was like a female warrior figure. You know, it was supposed to be, not autobiographical, but symbolic. But I, I don't know that many 14-year-old boys got that. <laughs> yeah. <well. laughs> you know, I'm not complaining because here I am years later and it was, it you know, it turned me um, into, it became an iconic image in the hard rock world and people yeah. still ask me about it. Here I am being asked to talk about it still. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, violinist and multifaceted career entertainer and musician, Natalie McMaster. Natalie is one of Canada's preeminent fiddlers with a long list of accomplishments. Are the people in Cape Breton the nicest people in, on earth? And if so, why? You know, I've been to a lot of great places in the world, and I always remark on the great people, you know, that that are all over the place. So Cape Breton definitely has them. There's no question. I mean, um, you know, they're, they're, they're as nice as any people you'll meet. And why is that the case? I think there's a lot to be said for working hard in life and appreciating, appreciating many things. Um, Cape Bretoners, you can work hard in life and be bitter, or you can work hard in life and be a really nice person. Mm-hmm. Because you have, you know, just an appreciation for anything, anything that you have, anything that you own, anything that you see you see more gifts in other people yeah and also too i mean our faith we're we're very faith filled yeah. and so that guides our our moral compass and there's a very very uh, just a way of life there where people are very charitable yeah. they just have charity just at the heart of of everything they do well, and you obviously took them and translated them into your life and your music and everything else, right? Like the, the yeah. community values and, and the music community too, right? You you were tied in with the Rankin family and some of the other players, that the Ashley McIsaac and, and, and those people as well, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. And there is a great music community down there, as, as everyone knows. 
Was there any defining moment for you? No, there wasn't. But there were a lot of moments that were memorable. Like when I signed my first record deal, that was yeah. a big that was a big day. Um, making my first recording, I was sixteen. I think my record deal was when I was twenty five. Yeah. Um, or maybe twenty three. I can't quite remember. And you know, playing Carnegie Hall for the first time. Yeah. The Hollywood Bowl, traveling to Japan and New Zealand and nice. Antarctica and crazy places and yeah. um, doing collaborations. I opened for Santana, Carlos Santana. So those times in life when you get to collaborate or, or open for or work with other artists who are yeah. big in the industry, those are, I'll never forget those moments. There was a big full-size fiddle in our house, but I was like, you know, little girl. Yeah. Three, four, five, six, seven. At those times, there was no awareness that kids could play an instrument like at those young ages. So, you know, I never had a fiddle that fit me. And then when I was nine, a relative gave my dad a fiddle. Hmm. Uh, it was a three-quarter size fiddle. So it fit me. You know, I was getting bigger and the fiddle was a little smaller. So it just came at the right time. Most kids try an instrument. I mean, it, it would be rare for people not to try, yeah. but then most of them just sort of let it go after a while. And then I wondered about that with, mm-hmm. with your kids, because you have a big family, right? Seven kids from, from what I see. And yep. they all play, but th- there would be some from them that would emerge into the music and others would say, well, you know, I want to I do something else. Do you see that in your kids? Starting a little bit, yep. Yep, they're still pretty young, but our oldest is 16. She's yeah. definitely taking... To the fiddling and the piano hard like there's no one i've ever seen want to be more of a musician than her okay um and then my next boy is incredibly talented but not necessarily motivated for music as much as he is with sports so we'll see where that goes um or maybe they're both the same i don't know but there's a strong he just loves soccer he loves it as much as i've ever seen anyone love anything there you go like it just it, it causes him tears like like of joy to think like he's just so Loves the sport so much. And then uh, my daughter, Claire, she's a great singer, and she plays fiddle and piano as well. I don't know. She's still, I'm not sure. She enjoys yeah. singing the most, but we'll see where, where that goes. She's very, she loves animals, and she, I, she's mentioned about being a vet. So oh, nice. Maybe that's where her passion is. I'm not sure. Yeah. Julia also loves to sing, but she's our little actress, and who mm-hmm. knows where that leads. She's not necessarily so much inclined for instruments, although she does play. Yeah. My boy Alec seems to be very taken with the drums, so yeah. you know he's got that going on. But he's still too young to want to practice, right? See the benefit in it, you know. Yeah. Um, and then the the other two are still too young to tell. Right. I wanted to ask you about the record deal. You mentioned that that you had got a record deal and stuff, and then typically with record companies you know, when you, when you grow up and you, you're playing from your heart and you're playing the music that you like, and then as soon as you sign a record deal and things become more serious, right? Then you want to sell records and you want to get a tour and you've got to do a lot of things. Did you have a lot of pressure when that happened? Was there, you know, chasing hit songs no. or charts? Or? No, nothing changed other than just more excitement, just really more excitement. Yeah. You know, I just continued on the path. No, I, I didn't have one of those. Yeah. rocker record deals that you hear about back from the 70s and 80s where people you know record companies made them do this and that no I was I was on the it was the kind of the end of that era and the beginning of more control with the artists I'm not in mainstream pop world I'm, I'm a fiddler you know records used to sell great when they were out of my trunk back in the <laughs> early 90s yeah. that was awesome then you made money on, on recordings now yes. recordings 
um, really are more for, they're a, a marketing tool, really. Yeah. That's what they serve. That's more the purpose they serve. You don't even sell hard disks anymore. It's all Spotify and iTunes and that sort of thing. So right. it's just a different world. How do you actually categorize your music now? Is it Celtic, East Coast, Irish, Scottish, Acadian? You know what? Danelle and I just finished our our, our recording. We um, just finished that, and it is, I don't know what handle you'd put on it. <laughs> now, the previous recording I did was a traditional Cape Breton-style record, but but not quite kind of thing. So it was, But it was very rootsy, like trad, yeah. rootsy kind of thing. And it was very simple. It wasn't produced, you know, it was very simple production, I should say, just fiddling guitar and bass through the whole record. This here is all over the place. I mean, I was doing a list of the musicians, and we've got horns on there and banjos and synth pads and programming and, you know, all sorts of stuff. So it's really all over the map. So I can't even put, I don't know what they're going to put on that. I, I was going to ask you the difference between a violin and a fiddle, and, and the, the, the reason is because my grandpa was a fiddler, but some of the violinists, you know, can be a little snooty about being called a fiddler. So I, I like to ask the question, what's the difference between a violin and a fiddle? No difference between a violin and a fiddle. It's like Santa Claus and St. Nicholas. Same <laughs> person, same instrument. Yeah, it's just whatever you like to call it. I've, I've not encountered that, although I'm aware of it, but my, my grandmother used to call the instrument a violin always. Yes. And then I've heard people from the classical world, in fact, it's that Girlman said in an interview, you're not a real player until you can call your instrument a fiddle. Right. So, you know, yeah. it's just kind of, it's just lighthearted. How much does dance sort of play into what you do? Because it, it's mostly the music, I would assume, but there's there's dance bits as yeah. well, right? Dance bits, it doesn't really, I mean, yeah, it plays into the music in that part of our culture is piano playing, Gaelic singing, step dancing, fiddling. You know, there's a style of dance that goes with their music for sure. But, I mean, you can detach the two and still have them thrive. You know what I mean? Right. The music isn't dependent on it, but definitely there's, you know, it's like the complete outfit when you see and hear people talk Gaelic dance the dance, play the fiddle, and, you know, it's like, oh, okay, it all connects. Do you still do some dance yourself? Yes, I do. Not very much now that I have children who dance way better than I and (laughs) way more beautiful to look at and way more energy. So I just kind of, they go out in their show and dance. And then I wanted to ask you about your connection to Alison Krauss. She did Get Me Through December with you and I saw the video and it's just fantastic, really good. And what's your connection with her? We um, we met when she was 16. I think we were both 16, oh, and wow. we were at the Vancouver Folk Festival, and she was in a fiddle workshop. So was I. Oh. So I just never knew she sang until three years later. I was in college, and I heard this beautiful voice, and my friend said, that's Alison Krauss. And I said, oh. Alison Krauss is a fiddler, not a singer. No, she's a singer. And I'm like, no, I met her. She's a fiddler. Wow. No. And then, of course, we find out she's both. And then maybe a few years after that, I had this song and hoped that she would sing on it. And so we connected with her. And sure enough, and we did that duet together, which is featured on my CD, In My Hands, and also on a collection CD of hers. Oh, wow. And how did the uh, Santana tour hap- happen? How did that happen that you were opening for Santana? It was actually someone who couldn't make it. It was a last-minute thing, and they asked if I would open for him. It was at a festival in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Nice. And I was at the festival anyway, but his opening slot, there were 80,000 people there. It was insane. It's the largest crowd I've ever played to. Neat. And, yeah, it was amazing. And at the end of the performance, I broke a string, and Carlos said to me when I got off the stage, he said, you should do what B.B. King does and bring along a spare. (laughs) So... 
Anyway, oh, very <laughs> that cool. was my connection with him. Yeah. yeah. I love playing for massive stages, massive audiences, right to the, you know, 50 people in a, in a little tiny venue somewhere. That's the beauty of it. It really is. And all of them have their charm. Yes, absolutely. As long as the crowd is enjoying it, it doesn't matter the numbers or the environment. It's just what they're giving to you, and you can feel it. Susan Aglukark is a Juno Award-winning Inuk singer and songwriter. Her blend of country, world music, and easy-listening pop is distinguished by her gentle voice, upbeat melodies, and inspirational lyrics sung in English and Inukitut. Over the past 30 years, her music has become an essential part of the Canadian music landscape. Your dad was a Pentecostal minister up there? We both are. My father, yes, they both were. My father has passed, uh, but both my father and my mother uh, are, are yeah. were Pentecostal ministers. Maybe I can ask you right up front. I, I'm a bit confused about the terminology, like um, Inuit and Inuk and, and some of the uh, First Nations or the Indigenous language that's used that's acceptable now. Could you correct me on that or educate me on that? Yeah. So for Inuit, so there are three dis- distinct indigenous groups. Uh, Inuit is one. I am Inuk, and we occupy what we call Inuit Nunangat, the ar- parts of the Arctic. Uh, the First Nations uh, also part- partly occupy uh, parts of the Arctic, uh, but they're more northern provinces and so on, and then the Métis. So three distinct uh, indigenous groups, Inuit, of which I am, Inuit, I-N-U-I-T, is the name of our group, but it's also the word that encompasses more than three um, three in a group. So three would be considered Inuit. Uh, Inuk, I-N-U-K, with the K at the end, is one person, one Inuk. Inuk, I-N-U-U-K, are two in a group, two in one group, Inuk. Um, it's also very important to make sure that you say the K when referring to the Inuit from the Arctic because we also have a First Nations group called the Innu, I-N-N-U, which sounds very similar to Inuk, uh, and that's where some right. people get confused. So, yeah, a bit of uh, a bit of uh, Inuktitut language there. So then the word Eskimo, why was that uh, seen as a disparaging term and why was that eliminated? Um, well, it, and it's also very important to understand that um, it isn't uh, necessarily disparaging to all Inuit. So there, were, there, was, there was a group and I was one of them to a degree. I don't, I don't have a problem with the word Eskimo. Um, Eskimo is obviously an Algonquin word. It's not the word that we selected for ourselves. This was part of the issue for, for some of us. Um, but, uh, where I chose a side when the time came, um, which was a side of not using Eskimo was because when we talk about reconciling and healing and especially healing where this term is concerned, there were stories, and there are uh, horrific stories about um, the the, uh, the the connection between the word Eskimo and some situations uh, of some of those from the previous generation who went to residential school. So um, when I heard those stories, I of course um, I I have to pick the side of healing. And if that means uh, they don't want to hear the word Eskimo, then that's what we do, right. you know. So that that was that's that's what happened for me uh, with the term Eskimo. So you were kind of an accidental musician, I guess, right? I mean, you sang in the choir at church. You weren't really chasing a rock star dream or or trying to be a, 
a professional musician. Is that correct? That's correct. And actually, Dan, um, there was no choir at church. Um, okay. I, I think I think um, in the early interviews, um, when we say we grew up in church, the assumption is always, oh, well, then there must have been a choir, so we'll just put that in there. Right. Actually, church for us in our environments, our northern environments, is very, very different from church in, in southern Canada. There were no okay. choirs. I don't read or write music. Uh, we had Sunday morning service, Sunday evening service, Wednesday night, and youth gatherings on Friday night. Um, aside from that, um, I, I had n- no experience whatsoever when I went from my no. day job to headlining. There was nothing in between. So, which is why um, when somebody said, "Well, you sound like an accidental artist," I feel like I am. <laughs> You know, I was given this incredible opportunity, yeah. um, and then it was just a lot of learning and catching up for the first few years of the career. Your your happenstance was it uh, was CBC, and you were singing. How did that happen that you ended up getting to record with CBC? Um, yeah, so um, I moved to Ottawa in the early fall of 1990. And shortly mm-hmm. after that was this conversation with my then boss about, um, I wrote poetry and, and diary um, writing. And so uh, part of my job was giving Inuit history lessons to high schools in the general Ottawa area. So I asked him if I could incorporate a poem about living between two worlds to finish high school. It was a poem called Searching. Oh. Um, this became um, a bigger conversation around uh, why don't we think about this becoming sort of a documentary, short little documentary piece about that. And this became a piece of music, uh, which became a music video that got on much, uh, much music. And I, I had no, mm. yeah, I had no album. <laughs> I had no songs recorded. I had nothing. And then there was this music video <laughs> that gets wow. heavy rotation on much music. And around the same time, CBC Northern Services um, used to do annual recordings of Northern artists. So they were LPs still at the time. And I don't know if it was the combination of that music video or how we got, I got the call. I was still doing my day job with the federal government. Mm. And I get this call from CBC Radio asking to submit a demo. And um, we ended up with a demo um, submitted to them. And they selected all of the songs, which were actually uh, five Inuktitut poems and one English. And they mm. got selected. And they ended up on this um, LP Northern Project. We, they started with the CDs then. Um, ended up on this compilation CD. And... Um, it turned into more songwriting with a producer of that project and Arctic Rose was born and, and then the rest wow. of the career happened. Yeah. Yeah. So that must've been sort of a, a left turn for you. Oh, it was. And it was going left for about five years. It was, <laughs> it was literally going in circles for five years. Cause I, I was loving what was happening, but I really truly had no clue. It was just incredible, but it was also very scary because I felt like yeah. I was constantly uh, catching up to keep up for the first few years. Yeah. Well, so Dreams for You, that came out in 1990. That yep. was the one you're talking about, the self-release. That's right. Yeah. And it was a cassette tape, yeah. actually. It was only in cassette yeah. form. Yeah. But the interesting thing when I listen to that, it's really deep and reflective, obviously, beautiful piano. And your voice is super pure, like like the, the tone. I, I guess you said you had no training. That was just a natural sort of way of singing, but the strings and the pad in there and your voice. So really what you're, I, mean, 
Actually, so what you're hearing is a re-recorded version. So the original okay. version um, was done um, uh, by CBC Radio, and it was just your basic um, four instruments, uh, you know, drum, guitar, um, yeah. all of these on that original little cassette tape um, okay. that I licensed back from CBC and released on my own. It was after that, and when I signed with EMI, uh, and I decided to re-record Dreams for You for that debut album, uh, This Child. Yeah. Okay, that that explains it. Because because when they said they recorded it on CBC Radio, I was thinking, was it like live? Did you just go in there and play it live? Or did they just do a quick sort of recording of it? Right, yeah. No, that's all in studio. And uh, that was a rearranged version uh, and re-recorded version. So the original one was a live one? Uh, no, no. Um, no. No, no, it was it was a studio. It was it was a similar thing in a studio with four musicians and and then go back okay. and do the vocals type thing. You had some traditional instruments in there too. The song "Searching." There's a wind instrument in there. That's is that a, an Inuk instrument? <laughs> Actually, that was uh, I think that was a didgeridoo, which is an Australian an Australian instrument. Oh, cool. Okay, because it's yeah, it's like it's like a flutish kind of a sound, but it's more guttural. It's it's deeper, right? Yeah, it was interesting because um, in the studio working with Chad uh, on that This Child album, we kind of sat down and we said, okay, so what are traditional Inuit instruments? And mm -hmm. we really didn't have any. We had what we call the qilaut, the drum, which was a caribou yeah. hide drum, which we used. There is the mouth harp, but we didn't really have place for the mouth harp quite yet, which was not okay. necessarily traditional to Inuit. Um, but the wind instrument, our percussionist, Tom Barlow, came in with um, his, uh, his gadgets, and he started playing with this um, wind sound and... We just okay. Well, that's that's a that's a beautiful sound. So Chad yeah. found a place to use that. Yeah. So the other languages in this child are um, two other First Nations languages. Okay. OCM is Coast Salish, mm -hmm. uh, and Hinanaho is Dene. Uh, there is no French, but maybe one of those two might have sounded French. And of course, okay. there's the Inuktitut, which is my traditional language. Right. And then in one of the songs, I can't remember, maybe it was searching, but you're switching, you switch back and forth. Yeah. Into, into Inuktitut, Inuktitut into English. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, recording artist and Canadian icon, Jan Arden. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I, uh, I thought I should start with a joke because you're such a funny person, okay. but I couldn't think of one. <laughs> oh, I was all ready. I was like, I was, so a priest, a nun and a penguin walk go. into a bowling alley. That's great. Yeah. I, uh, I I love your interviews, and when I hear you talk and stuff, you you have this way of going from serious to funny to funny to serious to reflective back to funny to, and you just kind of float between them all. Isn't that kind of life in general, though? <laughs> I mean, if you were to sit at a dinner table anywhere, whether it's at your parents' house or out at a restaurant or. A diner, I think conversations tend to really swing, that pendulum really swings from one absurd topic to the next. I always love eavesdropping on people. I'm very voyeuristic that way. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to look through keyholes at people doing nefarious things, but I do yes. like listening to conversations. Um, I find them yeah. fascinating, especially like in a women's bathroom at, you know, 1230 at night when you have groups of four or five women that always seem to visit the bathroom together, the snippets of what they're saying to each other, you're like, I have no idea of what really, what in relation this is to, but 
No, very cool. I learned to read music in like the eighth or ninth grade because I was in band. I played trumpet and I remember mm. playing the theme to MASH off of a chart of some kind. But I just have forgotten it. You know, I guess I should learn, but yeah. I never did. So were you a typical kid? Did you have stars in your eyes? Did you look at uh, the rock stars and say, I want to be that? No. Were you one of those kids? No. no? I wanted to be a school teacher. I kind of had aspirations of teaching drama or English, you know, lit mm. or something. I just stumbled forward. It really is a very, yeah. a long series of very seemingly insignificant events. There was never a big bang or a big yeah, break. Or, it was just something that I was good at. And I just kept going forward. And before I knew what had happened, you know, I was 28, 29 years old. I hadn't gone to university. I was still singing in the bars. And, and I certainly had moments of angst going, what am I going to yep. do? And, but, yeah. you know, it turned out okay. I guess I, I got lucky. You ended up in Vancouver out of uh, Calgary? Yeah, I was busking in Gastown for a while. And it, mm. it was dismal and stupid. And then I ended up in bar bands going through the interior yep. of BC, like, Smithers and yeah. Kamloops oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, up north, uh, Dawson Creek. We went into the Yukon a little bit, you know, White Horse, Yellowknife. Yeah. Yeah. We just played ZZ Top covers and Sheena Easton and, you know, all the, all the classic stuff that you play bar bands. And during all of that, I was always writing my own, making up my own songs, I guess. And I had banked hundreds of really horrible songs that I just had on a pile of cassettes in a box. And, you know, hmm. I, I never had any intention of doing anything with them, but I really loved making up songs. So yeah. I think the passion was there. It, I mean, it, I, I always just loved doing it, but I just didn't think that someone like me coming from Springbank, Alberta could ever entertain a life in the music business. So I wasn't a shameless self promoter. I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate yeah. that, but it's just, it's just, it wasn't, wasn't yeah. part of my personality. A lot of people talked about getting record deals. I mean, how the heck do you get a record deal? Like how, how do you go well, from playing a bar and then getting a record deal? I started working with a guy named Neil McGonigal hmm. and he had worked with some labels and I know that he sort of had these connections where he kept sending my demos, uh, stuff that we had worked on to different labels all over the place that all turned us down. They were yeah. looking for something different. And I tell the story a lot because it's a perfect example of good things coming out of bad things and how random life is. Neil had sent a cassette with, oh gosh, eight or nine, maybe 10 songs with me just playing guitar. And it went to a guy named Alan Reed at A&M Records. And he was very new at artist and repertoire there. He, in fact, he hadn't signed anything in 1991. The grunge scene was happening on the West Coast and Every young A&R guy was looking to sign the next Nirvana, the next Pearl Jam. So when my tape came across his desk of a, you know, a more or less a middle-aged woman, I was 29 years old when he got my tape. So that's quite antiquated in the music business. He turned it down. And just through some weird series of events within a very, like the 24 or 48 hours, his longtime girlfriend, fiance called everything oh. off. And, uh, he was very distraught, took some time off. Anyway, when he came back to work, he's a 26-year-old guy. He was younger than me. My cassette was still in his car. And when he got in there, here's this woman singing about, you know, these love songs. I think the song that he listened to was called I Just Don't Love You Anymore, which is the, the irony is not lost on me. Hmm. And then he called Neil and just said, I don't know if we'll ever sell a record, but I'm 
I'm going to sign Jan. I think I get what she does. So it was just through a a mishap, somebody else's unfortunate event that changed Mm -hmm. his perspective on what he was hearing. Because like I said, initially he had turned me down. I kind of started singing to represent my songwriting. I didn't really Mm -hmm. know how to get anybody else to sing my song. So through default, I was kind of singing them, but I always enjoyed singing. I enjoyed singing when I was a kid, loved singing along, loved copying people. So I think just something very simple and very basic was that I liked doing it. It made me feel good. It was, it was just a very straightforward thing. I liked doing it. It made me feel good. And I think that's, what's always kept me involved in music because I have no interest in the fame part of it or any of that, but I really do enjoy it. I'm certainly not yeah. one of the best singers around. I'm I do what I do, I think, and I sound like myself. And I'm fortunate yeah. that way is that I think when people hear my voice, they know that it's me fairly soon out of the gate. That's been helpful to me for sure. So that must have been a bit of a, a whirlwind for you because you ended up in Santa Monica. Is that right? You mm-hmm. went down to the States and, and recorded in LA. Yeah. Neil and I had the opportunity to talk to a bunch of producers. I remember speaking to one of the guys at Steely Dan and... Um, John Leventhal, who I've always been such a big fan of. And then, of course, Ed Cherney. He's passed away now, but he had worked with so many greats, Bonnie Raitt and Clapton. and yeah. I mean, just everybody. Ed was a world-class engineer and worked on some of the biggest records that you and I have ever heard in our lifetimes. He's, yeah. He worked on them. And then he started producing. And I remember when I met him, I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't really know what a producer did. I certainly had guys work on my demos before but he tried to talk me into hiring larry klein which was joni mitchell's oh. partner he, he he's just like larry larry's great he's a lot better than me you should go with him and i just yeah. thought anyone that tries to hire somebody else is my kind of guy so i yeah. i went with eddie and uh, we worked together on quite a few records eddie just right. he took the songs and he he told me right off he says i'm good at clearing the way you know, the 90s, yeah. we were still working with two-inch tape, and it was yeah. it was all analog. Um, digital yeah. had kind of showed up a little bit in some of the MIDI stuff and some of the keyboard stuff, but it wasn't it wasn't widely accepted by the pros. They yeah. they wanted to do everything just from the big Neve boards and and bouncing tracks and all that stuff. So I'm glad that yeah. I actually got to live in that yeah. world the first ten years of my career. So here you are down in LA recording, you're, you're kind of living the dream as far as the music business goes. And so why didn't you stay there and, and kind of build your career out of there? Oh, I didn't even cross my mind. I just wanted nope. to come home. No, I, I didn't, uh, I wasn't a clubber or, I, or a networker. I wasn't a person that jammed with other musicians. I didn't know anybody. I was raised, I live just a few miles from where I grew up. Like I'm out in the okay. country. So I, I really never even lived in cities. They're just, I don't feel well (laughs) in a big city. I I just, I just was, uh, I was, you know, 29, 30 going on like 14. All I wanted to do was get home. I was homesick the whole time. Many critics said that I was too normal to make it in, in the United States. I mean, I, I, I never, never worked hard at it. I never toured down there a lot. You know, Insensitive was such a smash hit all over the world. And so certainly experiencing that and, and touring down there a few times, but I was so profoundly unhappy um, just playing clubs and, you know, really not making any money and people just came to hear the one song and then they'd leave. And it was, it was such a weird thing. 
I just didn't have that thing in my body that wanted to be in a white panel van shooting, you know, from Minneapolis to, to Philadelphia and then across to Seattle. Like I just, I'm just like, no, I don't, I just don't want it that bad. And then in Canada, things somehow were different. I was, I was doing theaters and, and they just got bigger and bigger. And then I was, you know, doing some arenas and, uh, but I did the, I did, you know, Letterman and Leno and, Oh, Good Morning America. I did all the TV stuff yep. ad nauseum. How was that? It, it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. I remember doing the Rosie O'Donnell show early days. She'd probably been on the air yep. for two months, and she was wonderful. She was such a good version of herself at that time. Yeah. Yeah, the show. She was the queen of nice. Yeah. she was dubbed the queen of nice yeah. back then. It right? was just yep. the show was just really taking off, and you know, I did all that, and I just thought, no, this isn't where I am. I'm absolutely a singer songwriter, but. It was the work that propelled me forward and not whatever that was. Thank God. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.